Welcome to The Jay Martin Show and the pursuit of personal sovereignty. Now, my guest today is Ted Oakley, the managing partner at Oxbow Advisors. Ted manages the money of very wealthy individuals, typically after they sell a company and are now sitting on a pile of cash. He counsels them on how to protect and grow that money. So today, I wanted to dive into Ted's portfolio and see how he's allocating capital. And like so many of the investors that have been on my channel recently, Ted's playing a very defensive game. He's not seeing much value anywhere, and so he's in a protective state. Now, we get into what that looks like and how he's where he's holding capital as a consequence. And another guy, by the way, who is not a gold bug, but makes a pretty compelling bullish case for gold right now, which I'm paying attention attention to. So I hope you enjoy this interview. If you enjoy my content, there is a pinned comment right beneath this video where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I absolutely love writing it and would love to have you join the team. So click subscribe and sign up for my weekly distribution. Here is Ted Oakley. Enjoy. All right, here I am with Ted Oakley. Ted, how are you? I'm doing great, Jay. Thanks. Well, thanks so much for making the time to chat with me today. You know, I want to jump right in. Um, the landscape is changing out there. Central banks all over the world are raising rates and ending stimulus. There's a hot war occurring in Europe and inflation is hitting all-time highs. My first question for you, Ted, is what does your portfolio look like? Where do you have cash right now? Well, you know, Jay, we're uh, more defensive right now than we've been, oh gosh, all the way back to probably 07, all right? Mm -hmm. We have, um, even in the stock account, we run three strategies, but all of our strategies have at least 40% liquid. And a couple of the income strategies, the other two strategies have probably 50 or more. Uh, and not, and it's because when we look at everything right now, we cannot give you a scenario where we think there's a tremendous amount of upside here. Interesting. And so talking about that liquidity, you holding cash, what are the liquid assets? You know, we don't, uh, we try not to hold a lot of cash, like in money market funds, they, they tend to lag, you know, the rates on the way up. And so we have a lot of money in uh, floating rate treasuries. They float with a 90 day rate, uh, yeah. which is a, uh, gives us a chance to really get some yield, but also get some safety, but also get liquidity. I mean, we can come and go on those anytime we want to. We did, by the way, uh, just take 10% of the cash and we put 5% in the in the six month treasury, which is a little over one, it was about 108. And we put uh, another 5% in the one year treasury, which at that time was about a 165, 168. So, and we can grab that anytime we wanted it too. Um, but that's what we're doing. That's what we do with our cash. And is that strategy motivated strictly by a lack of attractive options? Like you said, it's hard to find value right now. I can relate to that. Is it also influenced a little bit by the um, the the um, the want to be agile in case something occurs? You want to be able to act on it quickly. Well, that's a very good point, Jay. You want you do want to be able to get liquid when when you need it, and and I think that people have actually given not enough credence to being liquid today. A lot of things they own. I look at these high yield bond funds, and about a third of the bonds in there don't even trade. <laughs> so I can see what would happen if they get a lot 
selling going on. But what the reason we do it is this. Number one, we see a decreasing uh, numbers in coming in the public companies in terms of earnings. Profit yeah. margins will probably never hit what they were in 21. They were 13.4%, all-time high, over 29, over 2,000. I mean, they were off the charts. And if you look at the multiples, too high, price to book, too high. So we we knew that was coming at us this year. We started getting liquid um, actually last year, but we really got more liquid as we came into this year. And then on the income side, we uh, we really we turned a lot of long term bonds last year. And 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 so just so you know, we own uh, a lot of short paper. I'm saying less than 48 months. And we own uh, we, we do own some. We own we have about a 10 percent position in the long-term treasury. Why do we have that? Because we think the curve is gonna break down this year where obviously they're pushing the short rates up, but we think eventually the whole thing folds on itself and the long rates come back down again. May take a couple of quarters, but that's where we are. And you know the things that have made us the most money the last um, year and a half, really two years, growth stocks made us a lot of money in 19, 20, 21. From 21 on, what we made a lot of money on were, were uh, energy, had a big position in energy, and the gold miners uh, made a lot of money on that too. Uh, but see, they're extended now, and so it's hard to come in and take big positions in it. So we're, if we got things really cheap, we would come back in for sure. And do you ever go down the food chain in the gold miner sector if the producers are becoming, you know, a bit too rich? Would you ever look down the food chain at developers? You know, what we've found is, is that we are not very good at getting into the, the juniors, Jay, because yeah. you really need to, you have to get really specific and you really need to technically know what's in those minds, how they're doing their work. Yeah. We're, not, we're honestly, we're not good enough to get to that point because that'd take a whole staff on its own. Yeah. But what we do is uh, to try to get around that, we we have a position in gold that's half of our gold look. OK, the other half is in the miners. But in the miners, half of the miners we own uh, basically are are just, um, you know, they're just royalty companies. And we, we love royalty, not only in energy, but we love royalty in the miners. And so, um, you know, that's what we that's what we look at the most in those. Yeah, it's a smart play right now, I, I think, because you've got a lot of cost control with the royalty companies, right? Especially if they pay dividends. Do you think that we're, I mean, you spoke about a lot of the money you made was in growth stocks over the previous two years. You know, do you think there's going to be a shift in investor sentiment towards companies that are paying dividends as opposed to looking for speculative growth as we have? You know, Jay, there will be some shift, but the problem is, unlike the tops, and I've been through a lot of tops and bottoms in markets, unlike the last tops where you could always find some things that were really defensive with great dividends, maybe twice the bond rate, you can't get that now. If you go in and look right now, even the dividend or risk scratch or anything like that, you're going to see the dividends are low now. You know, you're, you if, if you see a, a company with a two and a half or three percent dividend, that's a great dividend compared to what the S&P was. But it's not really that great when you think about the percentages on it. So mm. um, I think there will be some of that. However, if you look at the cyclical and even some of the defensive names, they've been coming off the last six weeks. And I think it's because they see that we're going into a tough six months in the market.
Interesting. Okay. Now, can I ask you a question, Ted? Uh, you know, I watched the U.S. decision to essentially confiscate $600 billion in USD reserves from Russia on the heels of this hot war and invasion. And it makes all the sense in the world. I completely understand it. I wonder about the message, though, that it sends to other central banks that may communicate you know, the U.S. has the power to seize USD reserves if it qualifies you as a bad actor and let us decide what that qualification may be. Will that shift the focus? Do you think about this? Would that shift the focus of other central banks thinking, OK, U.S. dollars aren't as secure as we've always believed them to be? And maybe we should start looking elsewhere in addition to holding U.S. dollars. What do you think? You know, I think they would think they're secure. I think the problem they would have, and this was a big deal. I think you just made a big point that we think is a really big deal. And that is that this hasn't happened before. So what happens is if I'm a smaller country out here right now, not as big as Russia, but a smaller country. And I'm like, you know, I don't think I'm going to keep all my money, my reserves in the dollar right now. I, I will keep some of it. But, you know, I, I, I could see them going more toward gold. It's hard, you know, it's hard to go to the, the, the yuan is only, I mean, it's only maybe 3% of reserves. So you're going to have to either go to the yen or go to the euro, which they might, they might go to the yen. But I think they will move around a little bit because of that. I think you made a really good point. If I'm a small country and I'm thinking, hey, these U.S. people could put me out of business, I'm going to think about that. Yeah. Right. And you're right. Like, where else do you go? You know, I, I think, I mean, I, I'm not a gold bug, but I own gold and, and I tend, I think about it as my insurance policy, right? I continue to purchase a little bit of gold twice a year. I hope I never, ever need it. My intention is to give it to my kids, right? Eventually. I hope, I hope to not need it, but you know, there's maybe once every generation or two where you really want to own gold. And when those events happen, it's almost the only thing you want to own. And so I just like having it in the chest. You know what I mean? So if you're not purchasing USD as your insurance policy, my thought is gold is the next best bet if you're a central bank. And if that occurs, you know, is this, is this as bullish as I believe it to be for the gold price? What do you think? Well, it should be Jay long-term uh, by that. I mean, you know, over the one to three year period, because if you think now, you know, a lot of countries have been buying, they've been buying gold the last couple of years. Yeah. And of course, Russia has a lot of gold, but they, they've been buying gold. And I think what they've been thinking is that, you know, uh, we see storm clouds on the horizon and I'm not certain we want to bet everything on a fiat currency. So we're going to, we're going to have that as a backup. And I, I, I don't know, you know, I don't really, I've never thought the crypto coins would be, uh, be where you would want to go to, 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 uh, out, you know, outside of, 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 of holding things outside of the currency. I, mm. not because I'm against them or anything like that. It's just that they fluctuate too much and you can't have some, you can't own something like that if it's going to be a currency backup that fluctuates that much. And so yeah. I do think goes the right way. Um, it probably will have the supply demand on gold, copper. Those things are going to be skewed in favor of, you know, pushing the price higher. Okay. Awesome. Now, outside of gold, are there any other commodities, Ted, that you're excited about or that you're watching closely right now? Well, we've done really well in uh, what in the commodities that we like. You know what? Before everybody liked them, uh, we bought timber, we bought fertilizer. Uh, you know, we had a lot of energy at the same time. Now we've actually. And just in the last uh, month, 
we've actually cut back on those a little bit. We still own them. Don't get me wrong, but they also are really expensive. And where I think you're going to see, you usually see this with commodities and commodity stocks. Okay. They, they move up and down on you. And what you want to try to do is own them when they're, you know, just getting a correction phase or something like that. I mean, I do think you're going to have a certain amount of, of um, inflation that's going to help those things. But you've had such a surge recently that they probably hit an extreme for a while. We'll see. But I really think they're going to back off some in the, in the next few quarters. And we'll look at probably adding back if that happens. Mm. Okay. Now, just because you mentioned it, what's your expectation for inflation? Do you think Chairman Powell is going to be able to complete the rate hikes that he claims? Like, is he going to do Volcker? He claims he's going to do Volcker, you know, and be that aggressive in order to tame inflation. Is this realistic? What do you think? Well, you know, Jay, I'm probably one of the few people that was around when uh, Paul Volcker was in. And uh, so I've watched him come in. And we started in 80, you know, we started in uh, 80, uh, mid 80s, uh, mid, mid 1980. And what happened was, uh, I mean, it, it drove it hard, you know, on the interest rate side. And since that time, every and he was a really uh, believable, honest you know, Federal Reserve chairman. Since that time, every other chairman has tried to want to be Paul Volcker, really. Yeah. Say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I can take care of this. They really haven't. They've nothing, nothing but soaked the markets with cash. And so I don't think he has a chance of making that happen. If you said to me, uh, you're going to do nine rate hikes this year, eight, eight to nine, I'd say you'll never, in our opinion, if I had to make a bet, you'll never get there. Mm. And I really think what he's doing is raising rates into an already slowing economy right now, right as we talk. Yeah. And so as the slower it gets, the more he raises then they'll be right back doing what they usually do, which is uh, uh, backtracking. <laughs> so more more reminiscent then of like 2000, 2001, right? Then 1970s in terms of the Fed's policy. Is that accurate? Raising well, rates? Well, probably. You know, uh, what happened was uh, in 2000, you know, building up to 99, I know uh, what Greenspan was doing is worried about Y2K. And I, uh, I never put two and two together on that. I know you think, well, things are going to come unwound and Y2K or whatever. Well, obviously nothing happened. And, um, and they, you know, in, in that, at that point, everything was too expensive anyway. And the two came together just right. Too expensive assets, raising the rates. Well, deja vu. We're right back there again today. Mm. You know, we have the most expensive, even more expensive in 2000, by the way. And, and on top of that, you raise the rates. So it has to do the same thing. It's a perfect storm for lower prices. Okay, I love that. Now, if it's okay, I wanna use the last few minutes of this interview selfishly. You're the author of several books. I'm really curious how you build this into your agenda. Um, I, I would like to publish my first book in the next two years, Ted. And so any tips, how do you schedule your time? How do you manage your time to be able to run Oxbow and author books at the pace that you do? Jay, that's a really great question. And, you know, everybody tells me all the time, I really want to write a book. I just I don't have the time. And what happens is I, I, and this is what we do. OK, and I'm not certain that's exactly right, but we find it works. People will not read 400 page books today. Now, they'll read 150 to 175 pages. So we keep our books 
where you could read those if you got on a flight from, uh, say, uh, Toronto to Atlanta. Mm. If you could read that uh, and you'd be finished. And we get our point across. That's the main point. But answering your question, what you have to do in writing, and it's really important, is to be hardcore about scheduling the time. My, my people know, people, staff around me, everybody that works with me knows that when I'm writing, you can't get in touch with me. There's no, there's no way you can get in touch with me. And uh, I found you, you guys start to think about it. You think, well, I don't think, what if something happens? Well, what's going to happen outside your family? And they know where to come and get you, yeah. you know, yeah. but outside of that, I mean, there's nothing you have to worry about. And people won't do that. They'll sit down to write, leave the phone on, leave the computer on, leave the TV on and see, they get interrupted. And what you have to do is write consistently. You have to say, okay, I'm going to do like I do Tuesday mornings. Mm-hmm. I'm working on a new book right now, just started. And I do, and, I, and that's when I write. I, and I, and I, I can't be, nobody can bother me at that time. You could do two days a week, but whatever you do, you have to really be hardcore about and do it in the morning. You'll mm-hmm. find that most great writers and people that write well, they write early to them. They may go from you know six in the morning till 10 or something or 11, but they, but then they're done. And cause you can only write so long before you start to, to really lose your, your zest and, but you come back and do it again and, and try to outline first. That's really important mm. to do an outline to say, okay, these are the points I want to get across uh, and have 15 of them or 12 of them, say 12 chapters, 15 chapters. So when you get the outline, then you can follow and it helps you because you're not jumping around, you know, topic to topic. And you say, okay, I want to, I want to describe and tell everything I want to about this topic. And i that's what I found works the best. I hope that helps. Yeah, no, hundred percent it does. And it's so relatable because you're right. Uh, you know, I, I author a weekly newsletter, so I have a little taste of, um, you know, what it requires, the discipline and dedication to be able to, you know, put out a few pages a week. Right. And, um, where I fall short sometimes if, my schedule gets busy and I'll have like a 30 minute block here and then a 40 minute block there. And then maybe an hour over here. And in my experience, creativity doesn't work like that. Right. It's like, you can't just jump into flow. Right. And then crank out 30 minutes. It's like, yes, but when I can block off five hours, then things happen. And I love you're you're doing something right. Cause you have a lot of followers and I'm, I always uh, admire people that have a lot of people that follow them and you have a lot of followers. So whatever you're doing is working. (laughs) It's fine. I just, you know what? I think my followers are very much like I am. They're just, they've jumped on the train because I'm asking questions they want to ask. Can I ask what, what book are you working on right now? What are you writing about? Well, I'm writing a book uh, right now. I've written a lot of books about with entrepreneurs and when they're selling a, a company, we work, we work nationwide, worldwide, really with people after they've sold the company because yeah, they have a yeah. liquidity effect. And I've written a number of books on that. And then I've written a lot of books on your emotions after you sell a company and what you go through. Cause there's a, there's a big emotional letdown at that point. However, I've never written much about, um, you know, the things that you need to think about before you sell the company. And I'm not talking about audits and all that sort of thing, you know, and estate planning or anything. I'm talking about emotionally what you need to think about when you sell your company, because, I think a lot of people that um, get ready to either re- or retire or sell a company, they don't realize the void that's going to be there. And if you're, say, under 65, 
uh, you've got a long way to go. And and when you have that void, and it's not just that part of it, but um, there's a void there. There's an ego part there to people that own company. And so I'm, I'm, this book's about that. It's about, basically, it's about the seven things that you need to think about before you sell the company. And it's not an audit. <laughs> it's something that's <laughs> about you personally. You know, yeah, you got to think yeah. about it. You, yeah. you, you're not going to know what your relationship is going to be with your spouse or your kids, because all of a sudden they're like, well, what does your dad do? He, well, he doesn't do anything. Hmm. Oh, well, you know, he must yeah. be rich. Well, if he is, let's go offer him a deal. See, all that stuff goes together and drives. Yeah. you got to get ready for that. Interesting. Okay. I have a couple more questions, but we'll, we'll offline about it. I won't drag this out sure. uh, for my personal sake any longer. Look, Ted, it was an honor and pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for making the time. All right, Jay. Thanks a lot. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.